You're listening to Soul Crush, a podcast dedicated to embodied spirituality, sexuality, and stories that soothe and inspire the soul. Each episode will be interviewing and having conversations with different teachers, healers, artists, people who have really taken hold of the wounding that they've experienced in life as a human and have learned how to extract the juice of creativity and um, empowerment that is inside of it. Our wish is that you deeply receive the transmission of each episode welcoming you into a greater alignment with your own soul's purpose and passion. Enjoy the episode and let us know if you have any questions. Welcome everybody who's here live, and I know a bunch of you will be watching this recording. Uh, my name is Adriana. For those of you I don't know, um, I'm a teacher and a healer, and um, I'm really excited to be, he- be here today with Malcolm. And Malcolm, I want to read your bio because it's always really fun to do that. Yeah. Let me find it. Okay, so I'm going to read Malcolm's bio and then um, we're going to get started. This is going to be a a satsang, which is, you know, a class and a coming together um, around the the truth. And in this particular um, context and in this topic today, we're going to be talking about Tantra um, and the particular uh, lineage that Malcolm has um, been initiated into and that he shares with um, all of his meditation students and uh, teachings. And so... I'll read your bio. Malcolm's a meditation teacher living in San Francisco, California. He has spent the last 20 years studying and practicing the best of Eastern and Western meditation techniques to better understand the mind's role in healing. Malcolm's steeped in the tantric traditions of South India. He leads tours, meditation retreats, and events that connect people to the uplifting, beautiful, and empowering Shakta goddess-centered tradition of Tantra. It's available for one-on-one meditation coaching. So welcome, Malcolm. So, so honored and um, so, yeah, just super grateful to have you here. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Amazing. So let's just get started giving um, maybe just a little context, um, a little bit about what what you've come to learn about Tantra and um, in particular, you know, I think the flow of this session um, is really ultimately also about healing. And I think, you know, when you and I talked that came through so strongly of, of the, both the traditional, like the context of the tradition itself. So maybe you could share a little bit about that and also how it really relates, you know, to, to what, what and who we're doing and, and how to kind of, both acknowledge, you know, this really ancient and, um, you know, tradition, and at the same time, um, feeling the freedom to um, allow it to kind of move in us in a way that's going to really serve, I think, what the purpose of, um, of it is, I mean, as far as I understand it. 
Yeah, Tantra is a really big subject and really, really vast. And there's lots and lots of ways of answering sort of what it is. Scholars, you know, kind of have their debate uh, around language and hermeneutics and that kind of thing. So I kind of define it or talk about it from the perspective that I understand. You know, I'm not a Sanskrit scholar. Um, I'm not an Indologist. I came into Tantra as a practice through someone who is an acknowledged master of the practice. And so I learned it very much in its sort of traditional context, which is the guru-disciple relationship, um, which I think we'll probably get into some of that in depth a little bit more. But the way that I understand Tantra and the way that it was always presented to me, and so the way that I practice it, is that what it really comes down to is a very sophisticated and elaborate form of psychology uh, and meditation system, really. There are a lot of really, really subtle, sophisticated and complex tools in Tantra that shift your perspective on reality and shift and enlarge your perspective on yourself. So the way that I kind of came into it, um, it happened over many, many years, but the condensed version of the story is I was in a really, really difficult place emotionally. Um, at center stage was a really painful relationship that ended abruptly and in ways that were really disruptive to me, not just the relationship ending, but you know, I think we all know that when you come intimately involved with someone, <clears throat> you can lose your, a little bit of yourself in those kinds of situations. And um, because of the nature of the relationship and how sort of dysfunctional and disruptive it was in general, um, those dynamics take up space in your head and they can drain you and you can lose yourself in that. So I ended up coming out of this relationship feeling very, very depleted and sort of lost and just disrupted and off center. And I stayed in that space for quite some time and just sort of privately felt like, you know, there's something about this that's not resolved and I, I don't know what it is. And it had been something in the back of my mind. Um, hold on, I'm getting cues that I need to turn my mic up. All right. Let me know how that is. Um, so I was stuck in all of this and I wanted out. And I came, ran across a friend of mine just randomly or maybe not randomly as these things kind of go, who said something extraordinarily insightful. And he was a person who was also involved in goddess worship and Shakta kind of things. And ran into him on the street and had this conversation and he said something that was so insightful and poignant and in the moment and seemed um, to speak to what I was going through in a way that resolved it in one statement that it was just elusive. How could, you know, someone I haven't seen in a long time, just say this one thing that unraveled all of this stuff. Up until this point, I had been on the fringes of Shaktism. It was something I was interested in. It was something I wanted to know more about. It was something I'd been looking into and so on and so forth. His statement at that time seemed to me to be in direct response to my request for help. You know, mm -hmm. so the classic sort of goddess trope, you get into a situation, the demons inside or outside, hordes take control, mm -hmm. disrupt everything. Even the gods become uh, disturbed and they mm -hmm. seek an answer. And the answer is the goddess in one form or another who emanates herself and so on and so forth. So very much in that theme, I had quietly and sort of privately said, you know, this goddess business, you know, I don't know about all of this. If there's any reality to you at all, solve this problem. So it's almost a, a kind of challenge. You know? <laughs> I'm not exactly sure if I believe all of this. It sounds nice. You know, I, I'm trying here. 
but if there's any reality to this, then you'll solve this problem because that's what you're supposed to do. You know, people get distressed, people seek you out, you arise in some warrior form, you slay all the demons and you restore harmony order. Okay, I got a lot of demons. I got a lot for you to work with here, so prove it. And if you do this, then I'll be devoted to you. Classic sort of thing. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I could run into this friend, this statement is made. All of these problems one by one start to unravel very, very quickly. So I start to think like, uh-oh, Huh. you know, now I might have to end up to my end of the deal. <laughs> and shortly after that, I was introduced to the man who became my guru through, a, uh, you know, another coincidence, through a friend. And that was the start of the relationship. And slowly over time, he introduced me to these very, very powerful practices, these very powerful mantras and this whole sort of tradition. And that was a relationship too that grew in time. I was also not necessarily receptive to the idea of a guru-shisha relationship and certainly not in its classical form, which is formal. It involves really complex mutual sets of considerations and sort of rules. Um, so let me back up and explain sort of why that's so important. I had a conversation yesterday with a friend of mine who comes to meditation class. Um, I think he's actually here. He, I didn't get his permission to talk about his story, so I won't get into too many of the details, but basically he reached out and said, hey, I'm noticing some changes in my nervous system. I'm noticing some changes in my body, and I think it's in relation to the meditation work that we've been sort of doing. So it brought me back to a speech that I give everyone who comes to me to meditate um, that I say, and it goes like this. This is not theoretical. Tantric meditations alter perception and cognition in ways that are palpable and quite real. That is the reason for gurus in the tradition. That's the reason for a lot of the rules in the tradition. On one hand, Tantra is a spiritually elevating philosophy on life that emphasizes balance and integration over you know, renunciation and this kind of thing, creativity over suppression and so on and so forth. None of this in the, the direction of indulgence. Um, but at the same time, it is also a set of techniques or a technology that works for anyone. It doesn't matter if you're a nice person or not. It doesn't matter if you're a saint or a psychopath. These things will work and they do something quite real to your perception, your cognition, your nervous system, all of that. That is the reason why we need gurus and shishas in this relationship. It's not to just have some sort of arbitrary, hierarchical, oppressive, oppressive, an oppressing system of marginalizing people and centralizing power in the hands of a few people. No, 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 no. These techniques do something quite real to you. If you are not prepared for it, that won't be pleasant and it won't be uplifting and it won't do what it's supposed to do. So you need someone who's done these practices, who's seen the effects of them to guide you through step-by-step step in a way that makes the changes that actually happen in your mind and nervous system productive, uplifting, not just for you, but for other people. So that's the container of the guru-shisha relationship. You learn to internalize the set of precepts, which are not very different from the yamas and yamas of classical yoga, mm -hmm. to give guidance and container to the actual very, very powerful changes that happen in your nervous system as a result of these practices. It is very subtle. So you need someone standing outside of you a little bit to point out when it goes a little off 
And that happens in subtle ways. It, it's not always something grand and dramatic. And in fact, quite early on in sort of learning a lot of these mantras and chanting, there started to be a side effect of a particular mantra that was actually quite pleasant and I was enjoying and almost didn't mention to my teacher. And I think he sort of picked up on something, said, you know, how's your job going? How's your practice? And I started to explain this what I thought was a very pleasant side effect and something that was supposed to happen with the practice that was actually a distraction and a detour and was going to derail me. And he pointed mm. it out. And this was early in our relationship. Um, and I didn't know him super well. So there was a little bit of like, hmm, you know, are you just trying to kill my buzz? Are you just trying to spoil my party? This is actually quite pleasant. And, you know, he pointed out these pleasant side effects are not the goal of this tradition at all. And if you start to indulge in them, this is gonna take you down a side street that is pleasant at first, but will end up being a dead end of your nightmares. Stop it, back mm -hmm. off that practice right now. And in fact, he kind of changed some things around and, and redirected me. So, you know, all of that is how I got into the tradition um, sort of unwittingly. And then in a, a very intense um, traditional guru disciple relationship, that um, is one of the most powerful transformative experiences that I've ever been through. So, you know, I, I think a lot of times too, um, in the West, there is a resistance to the idea of gurus. There's a resistance to the idea of any sort of authority. Here's the deal. When you don't have a guru in actual Tantra, then your ego is your guru. And let me tell you, that mm -hmm. is a whole world of hurt to, mm -hmm. to get yourself out of. Um, if you're genuinely using these practices, you know, they're not yes. natural, they're not playthings, they do something quite real to you, um, positively or negatively. So for me, lucky enough to kind of fall into the tradition and learn these techniques from someone who is quite masterful in how they're applied and how to use them, that experience was actually pretty uplifting and transformative and really, really positive for the mm -hmm. most part. But, um, you know, the internet being what it is, it democratizes information for better or for worse. And it gives access to things that people may or may not completely understand and start using. And there is real harm that can come from that. So I, I don't think that aspect of the tradition should be sort of minimalized. It's not mind candy. It's not all subjective. It's not just um, your interior that can be impacted by these things for sure. So. Yeah, I love that so much. And I feel like what you shared, well, there's two things that come up for me. Well, lots of things are coming up when you're sharing. I'm like, yes, I just, I just love you so much. I mean, we, we don't know each other that well, but I'm like, I love you. <laughs> Mutual. <laughs> so I just need to get that out of the way because sometimes just having a hold that is like a lot. So I just gotta give it. But, um, you know, that what you shared about, you know, having that guru or, you know, I think having also just a guide, right, who has, you know, if, if that like traditional guru isn't in place, because I also think a lot of people are like, you know, the, I think the goddess herself and the, the, you know, the feminine from the way that I understand it, it's like she is, she's coming, you know, she's, I mean, as far I even, you know, she's coming in the form of so addictions and so many things I think that are actually like trying to pull us back to the earth, you know, in, in my experience. And so even just having that, um, like the importance of having someone who, who's like lived through the dark night and then out of it and then back into it and then back out of it and then back into it and then back out of it again, right? Is like so crucial because when you're in those moments, like you said, it's like, you're not, we're not meant to do it alone. And I also think it's just right. Like the part of the nature of, um, and you could always like correct me because so much of what I've learned is very like, 
I don't, I'm not sure where a lot of it came from. And sometimes I learn something and I'm like, I oftentimes experience something and then read about it in a book of Tantra. And I'm like, oh, that is what this is. Okay. I'm not super crazy, you know, like, and also like have had teachers along the way as well, of course, like, thank God, but that experience of, um, you know, relationship, right? Like, like it forces us into relationship and that is at the, at the essence, I think of, as opposed to like the renunciate path, right? Which like, you don't have to have relationship and, and very few of us are, are, even though we might want that in some moments or, or also it's like good to have that, right? Like to honor the, the, that part of you that like, you know, needs that solitude and that solo relationship to, to spirit or to God as you understand it. But also that's not the nature, I think, of what the world needs. You know, the world needs us to like work through our shit in relationship and like feel the anger and feel the pain and feel the this and the that. And then, you know, really, I think, work through a lot of these yeah. um, like deep rooted, um, like some scars even, which is, you know, the, the ways that we're kind of conditioned to, um, to not, I mean, to just not relate well. I mean, it's just like the, I think we're all like almost adolescents in a certain way in terms of evolution around like actual relating from places of love, true um, compassion and, and love and, and like really seeing one another. So thank yeah. you for sharing and, you know, that story, you know, of your own personal journey. I think it's really important to receive that. So thank you. Yeah, you know, and at the beginning of this, I had these sort of ideas that I was going to be a renunciate at some point. You know, I... Uh, when I first kind of came across Tantra and Tantric ideas, because Tantra can be practiced by renunciates and is, and there's, there's whole kinds of Tantra that are practiced more by people who are sannyasas and that kind of thing. And I thought that I was going to be one of them. And the, one of the first things that my guru said was, if you want to seriously study with me, renunciation is off the table for you forever. Like never in your lifetime will you do something like that if you study with me. That is not the way. That is not the way for you at all. And that was, I was sort of thunderstruck by that, you know? thinking, yeah. oh, wow, renunciation is the best and the highest and the most amazing. And it really kind of comes down to God has need of you where you are right now, where you are right now in this moment, God is too. And that is where you are needed. That's where your work is, wherever you are right now. It's not on a mountain. It's not in a monastery. It's not in a temple. It might not even be in, in Tantra in its formal sort of ways. You know, there's lots of ways that Tantra can be practiced. Some of them are quite formal and look just like regular Hinduism, quote unquote, from the outside. Um, lots of temple-based worship and that kind of thing. It, it might not take that form, really. It can be something much simpler to that than that. A lot of times it's speaking to you through whatever your persistent desire is, you know, wherever your talents and skills meet a persistent desire that you've had is usually a good place to look. That's where God needs you right now. That's where you'll be most useful right now. It's not about becoming something or someone else at all. It's about seeing clearly, very clearly into the present moment and the space that you occupy and how you show up in that and what you do with it for other people. You know, the ideal in, in Tantra and the, the forms that I learned it is not a renunciate. It's a person who's doing intense spiritual practice and is available to and for people around them in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So I think people sometimes get caught up too um, we've got a celebrity culture in lots and lots of ways. And we have a culture where um, celebrity is celebrated for better and for worse. And I think that sometimes that we take that in and we tend to think that whatever we're supposed to do, if it's important, then everyone in the whole world sees it. And we're celebrating and we're known and we're saving the world and we're doing something grand. No, 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 no. 
start right where you are with people right around you. And in my mind, that's the ultimate test of how deep your spirituality runs. So, you know, am I really kind and loving when I turn around and rip someone's head off in the grocery store because they bumped into me and I'm not even mildly inconvenienced by that gesture? That's where your spirituality is showing up, quite honestly. You know, how do you deal with that moment? That's more important in lots of ways than knowing lots of complicated mantras and all of these phantasmagoric visualizations and all of the stuff that is really kind of the trappings of Tantra. Uh, I think trap being kind of the key word there. You can get sidelined in that sort of minutia and be a shitty person. What is the point of that? What is yeah. the point of that? You're, you're not doing anything. Your, your work is no good, you know? So, um, all of this kind of stuff plays itself out. And that is the use of a guru too, because sometimes you can't see that kind of stuff. You don't know what you don't know. We all have a shadow, by the way. Um, and tantric work doesn't necessarily do away with that. In fact, it can inflame it, quite yeah. honestly. Yeah. These practices can make your shadow come out. And sometimes you don't see <clears throat> it yeah. as such, because it is your shadow. And this is the importance of things like yamas and niyamas and guru and container because yeah. these are practices, again, they don't just impact your interior. When that shadow comes out, it comes out and lives in and through you too, out into the world. And you start to do and harm and act from that place. You need someone to step in at that point and say, you know what? You need to gather yourself and mm -hmm. get together. Knock that horse shit off. But people do do things like that. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of times on, on some unconscious level, we resist an authority because we want our spirituality to consist of and to mean, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And that's our definition of freedom. That is not freedom. That is not freedom. My actions have no consequence on the world and I don't have to contemplate that. And that's my freedom. No, that's not a tantric definition of freedom at all, at all, at all, at all. So, um, you know, unfortunately, we can be very childlike when we approach spirituality. We, we approach it, the divine mother and tantra and all these tools like a big cosmic vending machine, you know, with all this stuff we get to get, yeah. you know, sometimes, but um, sometimes not. Sometimes yeah. there's some other things that might need to happen first. And even just that energy, right, of like, if you think about the goddess as, you know, oftentimes depicted or even experienced as this divine mother, right? And you're like, oh, like, let me just rest my head on your breasts and, you know, receive the nectar of, you know, universal consciousness through my body and, you know, that aspect. But I, I mean, I feel like that is an, that is there. And so is that, like what you're saying of like, so is that dark goddess. I think it's like the, the duality, right? That is, that is there that then we experience both like as us, but what we're devoted to, it's like both of those things are there, you know? And I think that childlike energy and that, you know, in some other traditions, like a lot of times I'll teach it from this, like part of why I teach about the inner child so much, it's just like a different way of, in a certain way of like looking at the shit that arises, you know, when that intensity of light is there, it's like, you know, my therapist always, I mean, this is also something other people have said, but it's something she's reminded me of a lot because I've dealt with a ton of shadow and even like have done things in more, conscious states that I, you know, are just things that you just never thought you would have done and, you know, all types of stuff. I mean, I've been pulled into like all sides of the feminine and in my own experience and just that whole teaching of like the, you know, the brighter, the light, the darker, the shadow, you know, and it's like, if you're going to fuck with that much light, you know, it's like for a lot of us, like you really are going to have to, you know, learn how to, how to, how to be with all of it you know, which is, yeah. a, it's a process, you know what I mean? And it's not always cute. And in other moments, it is just so empowering because you really 
I think we, we gather a stronger sense of self, you know, but a self that is like a flexible, as opposed to just like the ego being something that is just needs to go away, you know, which I feel like is what I kind of learned in my earlier yoga teaching, you know, and I think that that is part of it and it's nuanced, right? So it's hard to talk about like in an Instagram post, <laughs> you know, here we could have a conversation. So I'm grateful for that, but like it's nuanced because it's like, part of it is that, right? Like part of it is like lying my body on the floor and like being like, I don't, you know, like I told you, like going to the goddess temple and being like tiptoe, you know, mm-hmm. or being like, take everything from me, ma, like uh, take it all. You know, and last time I went, I'm like tiptoeing, I'm like, here's a little flower, like, don't take everything, like, but, like, I'll still lie my body down, but that other side of it that is really, um, it's, like, it's, it's real, like, what you're saying, you know, and I I think it's, like, um, it's so, it's so beautiful, and, and, and it's also so deeply humbling, but how we learn about, like, a strong ego that is flexible, like, that sense of self, I think, is really important, because it's, like, not self with a capital S, like even the small self, it's like, if that isn't strong, that's when I think then, you know, our shadow or the, you know, whoever shadow really comes in and you could think you're Jesus Christ, or you could think you're like the ultimate, you could just do whatever you want. It's not going to have, you know, like, I think a lot of these shadows of the gurus, you know, from a lot of Indian traditions, at least at this moment, and also a a lot of Westerners as well. um, You know, I think that that's a part, I mean, from my perspective, that's a part of it. And I'm curious what your, um, what your, what your um, perspective is on that. Yeah, a, a few things come up, you know, so classically yoga is, is spoken of as being um, yoga and bhoga, and people tend to translate bhoga as pleasure or enjoyment. Bhoga means all kinds of experience, any experience, pleasant mm. or unpleasant. And that is a, <laughs> I think, a truer definition to my experience of Tantra. It is all kinds of experiences as a part of your spiritual practice, pleasant and unpleasant alike. These practices, you know, it's, it's kind of like taking your foot off the hose. If there's a lot of stuff gunked up there, when that power, when that the mantras, the shakti starts flowing through, whatever is in and behind that obscuration gets blasted out. You may enjoy that or not, you know, and it's a part of the experience. It can show up as depression. It can show up as hopelessness. It can show up as joy. It can show up as radiance. It is whatever experience most needs to happen to you to move you where you need to go. That is, it's a little unpredictable, you know? Um, It's moved me in directions that I would have never thought possible, some of which I would have never thought even desirable. Um, It showed me talents and skills that I didn't think that I've had. And it's also showed me weak and disturbing parts of myself that I wasn't aware of before either. All of that comes out. That's all the experience of the Divine Mother. You know, it's transcendence and fullness. So, um, you know, I think a lot of times people tend to lean towards or, or look towards one extreme or the other of that polarity. So people want to transcend out of everything and be blissed out in this white light looking down from the mountaintop. Um, or people just want to indulge, indulge, indulge in all the pleasure of everything in life around them and more and more and more of that kind of fullness. It will give you both of those, but not necessarily in the way that you think up front. Um, you know, and as far as shadow goes, Shadow is an interesting concept. I think it's one of Jung's more useful sort of formulations. The, the flip side of, of shadow is that talents and positive things can be in your shadow too. It's just mm-hmm. anything that's suppressed, anything that you're not aware of, anything that's kind of behind you is in your shadow. It's not necessarily all only destructive. 
it can be quite creative things too. A, a lot of my shadow stuff has a lot to do with creativity. Um, yeah. That's a part of myself that is really, really suppressed. And that Tantra and coming into contact with these more, um, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, sort of feminine or yeah. um, divine and motherly sort of energies have opened up and, and also pointed out, wow, I've got all this sort of creativity that's in there that I'm suppressing and ignoring for whatever reason. Um, that comes forward too. So it's any experience is boga, really pleasant or unpleasant alike. Um, you know, as my first guru would kind of say, when these things happen, you smile and you nod and you keep moving. That's really the most important thing is that there's not really any final stopping place to it either. I mean, you're talking about something that's infinite. Yeah. What is outside of infinity? Nothing. I mean, that it just doesn't make sense. You just kind of keep going um, in lots of ways too, is a sort of secret of all of this stuff is, is that there kind of isn't one. You just keep going and going and going. So yeah. Um, yeah. I love that you, you know, going back to what you shared in the very beginning, just because it was something that came up and then I went off on a tangent as is what happens whenever I start talking. But what you said in the beginning of, and I loved how you kind of entered into it from this place of heartbreak. Cause I think, I mean, that's been my experience. And I think, you know, and every human experience is heartbreak, right? It's just like every, every single one of us is gonna die and every single one of us is gonna experience heartbreak. And hopefully, you know, we're all gonna experience a lot of other things as well, but those are like kind of, you know, they're really like givens, right? And so that experience of heartbreak and the, the desire, I think, you know, what you said that you then, that person kind of came into your life and and offered um, something that kind of started to shift it. One, I'm curious if you wouldn't mind sharing. Do you remember what it was? Like what the? I absolutely remember. Would you share? It, it was a statement in a moment that literally was one of those crossroads, and it was a tipping point. It was after you know, it's kind of like before that moment and after that moment. So, as I mentioned before at the beginning, um, I was stuck in this sort of thing and feeling like, okay. I, the relationship is clearly over and, and this part of my life is clearly over, but I'm unresolved about it for, for whatever reason. It's clear the all the external markers show that this is clearly over, but internally I haven't moved on. So the thing that my friend said, so I ran into him and we were talking, of course, we were talking about goddess stuff. And he just looked at me and very pointedly said, you know, and I wasn't, and by the way, I wasn't talking about what I was stuck on. We were talking about other stuff and we were about to part ways and he just, for whatever reason, felt prompted to say, you know, sometimes in order to heal and move on, we just need someone to say they're sorry. Mm. We just need to, for someone to acknowledge the harm they've done. And sometimes that's all you need to move on. Mm. And that was true in my situation. And I didn't know that that's what I needed. And then ironically enough, the person who I've felt harmed by did call me that same week and apologize out of nowhere. And I hadn't spoken to this person in God, six, seven, eight months, something like that. Really mm -hmm. long time. Like, you know, we had cut off all ties and all communication. And then the person just sort of emerged and asserted themselves in, in my life just to apologize and to really sort of lay out the laundry list of harm and really acknowledged and owned it. And it was healing. And I, it did free me from that situation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the forgiveness was there. I forgave the individual you know, don't want anything to do with them till this day, but forgave them and it allowed me to actually be able to, to move forward with my life. So that was the statement. You just need to, you just need an apology um, to be able to forgive and move on. Sometimes that's what's missing. So, and it's true. And it, it changed my life in lots of ways in that from that moment on, I, I made a decision inside of myself too that um, to really try and sincerely apologize when I've harmed people 
and to really do what was done for me in that healing way of like, not just to apologize, but for what and why. And to really, you know, if you need to apologize, you break out the laundry list and you do do that. And you say, I've harmed you in these ways. This is why this is not okay. You know, this is why I'm taking ownership of this with no expectation that you will be in my life or, you know, everything's going to be great. I'm just offering this and then you do what you want with it. And I'm going to walk away because it's the right thing to do. It changed um, my perspective on that sort of thing too, as being important for healing and also accepting a sincere apology too. If someone sincerely apologizes to me for something, I will always forgive them. It, it, it caused that huge change too. Um, and sometimes even if they don't sincerely apologize, you know, yeah. forgiving people and walking away because that stuff just takes up space inside of you, you know. Yeah. It's, it's like running a race with one hand tied behind your back. It takes energy away from where it's needed in other areas of your life. So um, yeah, that was, that was what was said and that was what happened. So Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's such a, it's such a crucial aspect that I, I feel like gets missed in a lot of kind of spirituality or spiritual practices or you know I've even recently read how like forgiveness is a spiritual bypass you know I mean there's like obviously anything could be said at any time and you're like but there's such it's such a deep thing you know it's not just like a an idea like what you're saying which is part of why I wanted to have you expand on it a little bit because I think I know from my own experience on both sides of it like both having caused harm to people and also having harm done, you know, to me, it's like that, that deep, I think, humanity, that forgiveness, you know, requires us to tap into, you know, is so deeply sacred in, in a certain way, because there's no, because it's so real. You know, I think that like, when we get into that place, it's like, it's just so real. And it's so, it's so vulnerable. And it's so um, like, those places that we can't, like, it's not like a, there's nothing kind of complete, like there's nothing like solid to necessarily grasp onto, right? Because there's just like the complexity of um, human perception. And, you know, I mean, it gets so complex and so complicated. We each have our own truth in a certain way. And then there's the ultimate yeah. truth. But like, as humans, you know, we each have our experience and the ways that we perceive things. And, and so to make enough space for like, more than one reality, which I think we have to do in any relationship <laughs> is like, it's intense, right? It like forces you to kind of let your heart break open, you know, and, and, and keep it broken open as opposed yeah. to like trying to fix a broken heart when it's like, you know, it, it, it gets stronger as it, as it heals. But it's like, for me, it's, it's just, it's in the breaking, you know, where I'm like mm -hmm. feeling like, okay, so, like, transformation and healing is happening, you know, um, not just in the pain, but just in the willingness to kind of be, be in that space with, with others. So yeah, sharing that. someone, someone put, posted a question that I actually want to speak to, because I, yeah. I think that this is important because it plays itself out sort of in response to your question. So, um, Dan Arahakos, and I, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your last name there. Hi, Dan. Um, and so Dan is asking, what if you don't think that the other person would benefit from you reaching out? You don't decide that mm -hmm. as a piece of how that works. You, in offering things, when you're reaching out to someone to apologize, this is just me speaking, not as a clinical psychologist or as a guru or anything, but just as someone who's um, was transformed by this dynamic and speaking in the context of how powerful and transformative this forgiveness and, and this kind of thing is. That's kind of not for you to decide. You reach out and you offer and you walk away with no expectation. That's how you, you handle that, 
because if you have an expectation and you are trying to wrench a reaction out of another person, you need to know whether or not you're benefiting them and so on and so forth. It's not a sincere apology. An apology is an offering and it is an acknowledgement of mutual humanity. I have harmed you in these ways. I'm acknowledging your humanity in that and my mistake. That has to be done from a place of no expectation because if that turns into some kind of bargain, so now I'm offering you this and in return, you are going to do these things. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. I apologize, I owe in full stop. Mm -hmm. It's an offering. Mm -hmm. That's it, it's not a negotiation. So if you're not sure about that, you ask them. And if they don't respond to you, that's mm -hmm. your answer. Mm -hmm. And then you have to work through whatever guilt or whatever you have on your own. That's your work, it's not that other person's work. Mm -hmm. So as long as, you know, the offering of forgiveness is not tied to some sort of negotiation or some sort of obligation for the other person. I don't think there's any harm in just reaching out and, and offering it mm -hmm. and just leave it there and see what they do. They'll pick it up or they won't. And that'll be your answer. Your work mm -hmm. is done at that point mm -hmm. with that person. And if you yeah. still have some kind of feeling about it, that's unresolved for you, that's your unresolved feeling. And you find your resources and you work that out for you and you leave this other person alone if you're really apologizing. Yeah, that's just my two cents. So I love that. And I think that there's because it's like the this level of sensitivity, right? Like I, I recently had this with my mom, because my which is amazing. And I think some so much of the byproduct of the healing work that I've done with Tantra and with other practices has really affected my my family. I mean, in some ways, not at all. <laughs> but like, some ways I feel like it's on some subtle plane that like they're not going to wake up to in this lifetime and I have to be okay with that or whatever, you know, but, but with my mother, it really has happened. And she, you know, she, when I, when I moved across the country, you know, she went through this whole thing, you know, because I was like, you know, we both lived on the East coast forever and, you know, and you know, she had, she sent, wrote me this whole amends letter about something that happened when my dad died and she really wasn't able to be there at all for me. And, you know, and just this whole beautiful apology. And I was like, wow, like, thank you. You know, we had this whole healing moment and recently, you know, it came back up for her and she like called me and she was like, you know, I went to write you another apology letter. And then I realized I fucking apologized for this so many times. And I think I'm just putting it on you. Like now, like I realized, mm -hmm. why am I going to write you another letter? Like, I'm going to have to deal with this for the rest of my life. I'm going to have to keep forgiving myself. I was like, damn, mom, like, <laughs> like her, my mom on Instagram has been a positive thing. She like follows the holistic psychologist. She's like, my mom is like evolving, like through Instagram. And obviously, you know, I'm sure like, you know, our relationship has a little bit to do with it too, but I was just so, it was just in this, in this light of what we're talking about. I think it's just, it's, it's just important to notice all these subtleties, right? Because then it's like, wait, she realized, sometimes we realize, wait, this is just mine to hold and to like, ugh, like to be the, the I have to digest this. You know what I mean? I, I, I offered this and now, now it's on me, which is sometimes oftentimes the harder part, really, you know, because you have to like, you know, there's nowhere to, there's nowhere to put it. Sometimes you have to just, you know, deal with your own, I mean, stuff, you know, and, and that's part of, the, part of the practice, I think, and part of the oh, yeah. power of it. So I want to get to um, a little bit more around because I had a lot of people asking and because I have a lot of students that are yoga teachers and mm -hmm. some of them that, you know, um, you know, have had negative experiences with gurus or, you know, and I, I'm like, I want to walk the line of like, I don't want to just sit here and be like, blah, blah, blah. And like talk shit, obviously. Like I want to do this in like the highest way that we possibly can. But I also think yeah. it's super important because it's like, well, like, you know, someone said like, 
yeah, the lighter, the brighter the light, the darker the shadow, but that doesn't, how does that, you know, that also doesn't make things like abuse and all these things permissible. And which, you know, and then I think it ties into the forgiveness of what we're talking about, because that's a part of it, right? Not dismissing everything, but also, you know, being with it all. So I'd love to hear your your wisdom on that um, topic, because I know a lot of people here watching this recording will get good medicine out of that. Yeah, gurus, man. This is like, whoo-wee, where the rubber meets the road with all of this stuff. It's a lot. So, wow. <laughs> there, yeah, there's, there's just so much on this topic from so many angles and from so many reasons. And um, you know, to your point, I'm wanting to do this thoughtfully and I'm wanting to do this in a way that's beneficial for people. Um, but I'm also wanting to do it truthfully because there is some shit in here. <laughs> I don't want to get into all of it. Got to save something for the book. But <laughs> I, I do want to, to touch on some of the stuff with the Guru Shisha relationship because it's at the core of Tantra. And it is one of the more difficult aspects of the tradition. So let's start with, with what, a, what a guru is supposed to do and not. Because I think a lot of times the problem can be on the Western side, I think a lot of times people come into the guru-shisha relationship with some really unrealistic expectations or understandings of what a guru is. I think that from the guru side, if you're talking about classical sort of gurus, um, from India, there can be misunderstanding at that side. It, it depends on how much exposure they have to Western people, how much they actually understand about Western culture and Western cultural norms all plays into a lot of this sort of stuff because a guru is a cultural phenomenon that makes more sense in India in its classical form in some ways. You know, I, I'm not sure um, how many of the folks that are on today have experienced gurus in the classical sort of context in India. A guru in India is like a surgeon in a hospital. It makes so much sense there. The whole culture and society is set up in such a way that it works really well and it, it pretty it flows pretty well. Some of that doesn't translate as well in Western culture. Some of that doesn't make sense to people or people don't know how to look at that and interpret and understand and interface with that as a cultural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people aren't clear on what the expectations are and what the rules are and how this stuff all sort of works. And people abandon themselves to gurus in ways that they should not do, first of all. People give agency and power to gurus in ways that they should not be doing. But how it all works isn't understood. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. I kind of have outlined some of the reasons why classically a guru would be necessary. So if we take the um, very sort of exotic Sanskrit word out of it, and instead of guru, we substitute the word teacher or coach or manager or something like that, you get a better understanding of what this person is supposed to be doing in your life. So a guru is, at least in the tantric context, they are a practice expert. It means that they have done these practices under the guidance of someone else who's considered a guru or a practice expert in a way that the practice is directed, you get the benefit out of the practice, and you are able to sidestep and move around some of the hurdles and traps that come with tantric practice. That is what the guru is there to do. They are there for your upasana. They are there for your sadhana. They are there for your spiritual practice. 
as long as you are clear about that boundary and you are clear about that role that this person plays in your life, it will become less problematic. So here, here's where it becomes problematic. A guru is a practice expert, right? So I go to my guru for instruction. Guruji, how do I do this practice? Guruji, am I pro pronouncing this mantra correctly? Guruji, is this the sequence of the puja? <laughs> Not, what color curtains should I have? What should I eat? Is this person right for me? Is this a good investment choice? You go to a guru about those things if your guru is a subject matter expert in those things. I do not ask a guru for dental advice unless they are a dentist, right? I do not ask them how, if I, they should fix my car unless they are a mechanic. Yeah. No, 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 no. So first of all, we have to be clear about the scope of practice, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's you know. huge. And I think I just want, don't forget what you're about to say, but I just want to pause you for one second, because I think that the context, because you just like kind of unlock something for me, just even working with people, it's like, <clears throat> I oftentimes have to teach people how to ask those questions because it's not ingrained yes. in the culture. Like you didn't yes. ask the priest any questions. You just said, oh, I lied last week and I ate some candy, you know? And they're like, do the Hail Mary. And you're like, okay, you know, it's like, you didn't like, it's like, there's no conversation. And so most of us don't know how to have that conversation. Okay. Like I even say, like, anybody have any questions? How was your practice? And it's like, oh, good. It's like, you know, we don't know, like, I'm like, no, but what happened? You know, we have to really yes. like teach each other how to, how to how how to have this relationship of like you know it's interesting so i just wanted to like mark that cuz i think that's that's a and it's a huge awakener right cuz then you're mm -hmm. you're owning the experience you're not just asking cuz you're like helpless you're asking cuz you want to know cuz like this part of you that wants to evolve and grow is like awakening and alive and like want it wants to be nurtured you know what i mean yeah. and i think yeah. so much of it can can be you know resolved there so yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, that's the first area where, where gurus can be kind of problematic. People assign them a power or give them an agency that is unwarranted in a situation, right? So you, you go outside of the scope. It's like any other subject matter expert. If you go to an endocrinologist, don't expect that they're going to talk about, you know, your, your foot fungus. That's not their area of expertise. It's <laughs> just not. You have to be realistic. So that's number one where, where gurus can become problematic. The other area, and this is the deeper, more complex, nuanced area where a guru can become problematic, is this. Being a subject matter expert in one area does not make you a subject matter expert in another. And... In addition to being a good guru and knowing how to do a certain spiritual practice doesn't mean that you're an expert tennis player. Okay, so that seems sort of obvious. But the thing where it seems less obvious and where I think people have expectations and they're not also clear on is that just because someone is adept at a particular kind of spiritual practice, it doesn't mean that cognitively or morally or ethically that they are also equally developed. And this is where your own discrimination has to come into this equation. Just because a person knows and is expert at a particular spiritual practice and can guide you through that, the student might be more morally, intellectually, cognitively evolved than the guru in other areas. Mm -hmm. And if your guru has a lower level of development in an area and you have a higher level, it sets up a power struggle, number one, where the yeah. student may actually be right about the situation and the guru is not in that particular subject. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, people abandon their agency and allow a person, a person who has a higher level of cognitive or, or ethical development in a certain area because this person is a guru and is the external authority, will abandon their own 
better, higher ethical decision and knowledge to someone who has a lower ethical development because they are developed in one particular thing. So to, to kind of give that some flavor and some context so that it, we can see how it plays itself out. I'm really, really good at a particular spiritual practice. You can come to me and I can reliably tell you everything about that spiritual practice, but you might be more morally evolved than me. You have more care, concern. Your center of gravity is higher in that area. So I'm directing you in this practice. Hey, do this, sit like this, breathe like this, do, 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 chant like this, it's pronounced like that. And I have a lower ethical level of development than you. And so you notice me treating people inappropriately and doing all kinds of things that are inappropriate, but I'm an expert at this practice. And if you then let go of your own agency instead of saying, hey, something in your kitchen and your cooking don't smell right to me, you let that go and you let this person then direct you along a lower line of development. That is how gurus become problematic. People aren't even and people aren't one thing. You know, you might know more about math than me, then you need to be my math guru, right? Doesn't matter if I know more Sanskrit than you, I am not adequate to the task of teaching you mathematics if you have a PhD in mathematics and I don't. Mm -hmm. So it, there's all this stuff around these lines of development. The assumption is, is that the, the assumption from the tradition and the hope from the tradition really is, is that the guru is emotionally, um, cognitively, ethically, and morally at a higher level of development than the students who come to them. So they are not only able to guide you in a specific practice, their overall cognitive and emotional center of gravity is also as high as the spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. That may or may not be true. Mm -hmm. that's, where, that's where gurus become problems, mm -hmm. is when those things are not all true and we assume that they are, or they assume that they are. A lot of times gurus are living in enclaves of people of yes-sayers in lots and lots of ways. They may not be used to being challenged by people who do you think, or, or might be more developed than, than them in certain ways? They might only be exposed to people who um, know less than them and so on and so forth. And their sense of themselves and what they know and what they're able to transmit might also be distorted by the context that they've evolved in. So this is just all stuff to think about when you enter into a, a teacher-student relationship. You know, you need to keep your wits about you. And I'll say this very, very plainly. I do not go to gurus and spiritual teachers for things that I feel are outside of their scope. I just don't. Yeah. I do not take my investment portfolio to them and ask them to pick up my stocks. I don't. If they're an investment bank, maybe I would. But if they don't have that skill, I don't ask them about that. You have to be really clear about why you're going to this person and mm -hmm. what it is you think that they're there to do for you in your life. You know, yeah. they're not and there. Expanding, like what you're saying, like expanding. I, I feel like part of it is, you know, the way that we're conditioned and, and obviously like I can, I'm I identify as a woman and I have had my own experience of, you know, being raised as that. And like this, this emphasis that there's like this one relationship, whether it be to God or whether it be to another person, which is a romantic thing. It's like, those are kind of the two places that at least in this moment of, of where, you know, I'm 38. So some younger generations wouldn't have the same experience, but I think my age and, and, and older generations, it's like we're taught and trained that we're trained that like you go to one person to get everything. And so I think that then we like enter a spiritual path and there's this person and that same flood, you know, it's just like, it's there as opposed to like, I've had this experience, you know, where now it's like, 
I have like seven people around me helping me. I'm so grateful for all of them, right? But like, it didn't start like that. It started like, oh, right, this is the thing, right? Like, this is the this is the way, right? I think that there's just like this thing where it just, and what you're, you're naming is like our capacity to like actually create, you know, it's like when you think about having like a village or, you know, something that's like, actually, you know, there's people doing different things and how do we all kind of flow in that as opposed to this, like, this is the person or this is the thing that's going to like give you all the answers to everything. You know, it's almost just like, I think a lot of us have been conditioned into that pattern, you know, and, and I think part of why, like even the Neo Tantra, we didn't really get to this too much, but even just to touch on it, which is obviously another huge, we could have a five hour class. on like, all the, <laughs> but like, but why I think it does serve. Right. And why I teach about sexuality and, and I've been studying so much about relationship like not from a spiritual, I mean, the spiritual side of it is there, but that's almost like, that's just a given, but like how to actually relate, how to actually communicate, how to actually work with like the mistrust that's there, but you know, it's part of why my path has kind of, I think led into that direction. And I still want to have a teacher like you, I want you to be my teacher. (laughs) (laughs) So like, it's like, I want that, but it's like, why, you know, I think it is good that like, people are exploring sexuality and, you know, whatever, like neo-tantra yeah. stuff. It's like, so not what the essence of tantra is in a certain way. And like you shared with me, it's, it, it requires actually a huge context in a certain way to like mm-hmm. delve into spirit sexuality, I think. Yeah. But also it's like to just not talk about it at all, which is how I was taught. And anytime I did ask about it, it was like, well, that's not what this is about. And it's like, well, I'm like turned on all the time and it feels like a problem. <laughs> like, can somebody help me? And if no one's going to help me, I'm going to figure out, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and then absolutely. Shit, shit went so down, do you- it wasn't good. So like, you know, I think it's powerful to kind of like, just keep expanding, right. Our, our ability to like get support and also be support and be willing to be like, now I'm like, that's not my scope. Like yeah. call this person. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm so willing to do that as a teacher yes. now. And I wasn't yeah. always because I didn't know. I didn't even yeah. know I was supposed to do that. You know, it's interesting. Like, I, I, I kind of want, I do want to touch on the Neo Tantra and the, the sex and sexuality part because I know that people are probably wondering about that. And I think it yeah. really is important to address and sort of reframe. But I do want to kind of touch on a couple of more of the guru things. So a couple, couple of things that kind of came through and from Harsha too put some things that I think are really, really important. And I, I don't want to let them sort of slide here. So yeah. um, number one, it's good for the guru to be humble and clear about their specialized subject and also their developmental strengths and weaknesses. 100%. Mm-hmm. That is kind of all of it for me. Um, you know, and, and when people come to me about meditation, so first of all, I don't even frame anything that I do within the context of being a guru or, or even really a teacher. My model is really sort of, Um, more a co-teaching model for that very reason. I know a lot about this particular subject, but the list of things that I know nothing about is, you know, 50 times longer (laughs) than what I know about Tantra. So, and I'm very realistic about that. And I don't even know every, you know, everything about Tantra. And I think that there's a big fear amongst teachers, you know, people like you and I and Harshida and Sarah and other people that, you know, that will be found out that we really don't know all the answers. Okay, spoiler alert, everybody. Yeah. I don't. So, you know, spoiler alert, everybody. No one does. <laughs> so um, let that go and, and feel good about that. And yeah, you know, I don't know a whole lot about Tantra. I know enough that I feel confident in saying for probably about 90% of people who come to me, I'll, I have a head start on, on, on most of this stuff. You know what I mean? 
um, I can take you pretty far and I know where I end and where to point you out to like, you're right at the edge of where my knowledge about this ends, where my understanding of the subject ends and where my experience of the subject ends. And I try and be really clear and open and share that with everyone so that then they, they just have a choice. Um, around what they want to learn from me and if they want to learn from me at all and really clear about how far that's going to go and what to look out for and what that means between us you know um here's what i can do for you and i will do this to the best of my ability all of this stuff i can't do gurus are not expert psychologists by the way because the classic sort of tantric models of the human psyche don't have a developmental component to them so there is a sophisticated kind of spiritual psychology uh, that underlies something like Tantra, but it does not have the benefits of some of the modern and postmodern insights into mm -hmm. psychology that really, really come from research uh, and developmental models that came later, you know, mm -hmm. quite honestly. And I don't think, and that's another thing too, these traditions don't all have all the answers for everything. And we need to be clear about that, you know, um, they don't include lots of modern developments that are useful for understanding people and how we relate to each other. So we need to be clear about that too. And because the traditions don't have the, those kinds of things, life has moved on since medieval India, which is the heyday of Tantra, right? Mm. Life has changed since then. We have all kinds of things that people did not have then. We have all kinds of circumstances in our lives that gurus and people who wrote these Shastras and these sacred texts did not have in their lives. They did not know everything, which gets into an interesting subject of, you know, does enlightenment evolve as being, you know, the sort of ultimate source of knowledge when you contact that? Is that really ultimate and eternal or does it evolve in time and space because things keep changing on this planet? Put a pin in that. We can, we can pick that up later because that's a big topic too. But uh, I did just want to put that out there, you know, as far as like gurus and teachers go, I think a co-teaching model is better. I don't think that a lot of the cultural trappings of the model of a guru make sense in this country. I don't think that they make sense to people encountering them here in this country. You know, it, we just don't have a model for that. Kind of getting back to something you said earlier, you didn't ask priest questions. We don't really have in this culture a good model for what this relationship is even supposed to be or look like. Where, where do we have that? A guru is really kind of a spiritual friend. That's how I look at it. People who come to me who want to learn something, you know, yes, I know more than you about this particular subject. Let's be clear about that. I'll own that. And you, you have to be willing to agree with me or you shouldn't come to learn from me. If you know more than me, then the relationship is reversed, right? So we have to be clear about that. But at the same time, you might know any number of things that I need or want to learn too. So it's a co-teaching sort of thing. You know, I can teach you these meditation techniques and these rituals and what they do and how to apply them to your life, to your benefit. And, you know, um, I'm not good at some other things and maybe you can help me out with that. It's a co-teaching sort of thing. You know, I am, I look at myself uh, as a spiritual friend. I'm here to be supportive. I'm here to help you in whatever way I can. I'm here to hold you accountable sometimes because that's what good friends do. I'm here to be your sort of cheerleader too and a confidant a little bit. Um, but I'm not your mommy and I'm not your daddy and I'm not gonna wipe your ass and I can't solve all your problems either. You know, you're yeah. gonna have to own some of your own stuff. I can teach you some techniques that will help you get clear about some of this stuff perhaps. And then you can apply that clarity to solving your own problems. Um, I can show I you some things that'll- Thing that you're like, I love that because it's like, and I love the distinction that you just made of like, there, there has to be both of those things happening, right? Because it's like, otherwise then what the, the relation, it doesn't serve because the, the relationship requires like, like somebody coming for something, right? Like I'm coming to learn something. And it's like, you know, what I noticed so much working with people is like, 
the goddess, because I also want to kind of bring us around to to the goddess <laughs> so we could end with her. But like oh, yeah. that, that Shakti, right? It's like the way that it moves in each and every one of us, right? Which is what, as far as I understand, the practice supports. Yes. It's so unique and it's so amazing. Like, like to learn from, like that's one of my greatest, it's why I love working with people like one-on-one because it's amazing to see like, well, what's it doing now? Like, what's she doing now? Like, who are you now? And like, what, like, how can we support this, this moment for you now? And then in knowing that, right? Like she's going to change, it's going to change, like you're going to change, right? And so it's like this co-teaching and and the distinction that you just made is, I just want to thank you so much. And like, I, I just, you know, it, it's so, it's so useful, you know, because I don't think any of us, like, I know no, most people listening to this are not wanting to show up to be like, listen to me. I have all the answers. You know, it's like, mostly I'm like trying to encourage people to share their gifts. Cause they're like, we have a lot of insecurities around sharing what we yes. know. And at the same time, acknowledging we don't know, you know, it's like to hold that, to hold that, to be like, I know this and I don't know everything, you know, to, but it's like to name it, I think is so important. And I love that co-teaching model and um, something just quickly that Harsha just said of like that um, talking about a, a lot of us come from this kind of orphan archetype and in the Indian tradition and culture, yes. that just, that it's so, that just doesn't, you know, I mean, obviously there's orphans in India, obviously I'm not laughing. <laughs> yeah funny I'm just saying it's like yeah. obviously that's there but it's not we woven into their it, like their whole infrastructure is family and groups of families all live together in one room yes. and so it's like that I think I, I just wanted to name that that he brought up I think that's sure. an important piece of why all of that part of why that gets really totally confusing my my first guru he really considered me like his son you know after a time I spent time with not just him, but with his whole family, his children, his wife. I know his cousins. It it is not that kind of thing. I literally, like I, I know like his cousins and all these people. You, in the traditional sort of model, you would live with your guru. So my guru's guru lived in his house for 20 some years. It's, it's a completely, what I'm saying, we don't have good models for this stuff in this culture. It is a completely different experience. And, and you know, the relationship is a piece of the teaching. You learn in relationship to this person. And in my instance, in relationship to his whole family. Um, but it, it's not, the relationship itself is a piece of the teaching and that interaction between these two people around the center point of a tradition is where this alchemy sort of happens. You know, if you just want information, that's what the internet is for. That's what books are for. So it's not just information that comes from the teacher. It is the relationship itself, the alchemy of that and the alchemy of the sort of voluntary surrender. So when you come to a guru, you really are saying like, I'm going to trust that your center of gravity is higher in this area. So, you know, take the wheel, you're the GPS here. That is incredibly vulnerable and really, really powerful. And without the proper container, explosive or dangerous, because it really is a surrender of that sort of agency, voluntarily and willfully, you know, Um, that has to be there. But man, that's where the rubber meets the road with all, all of this stuff and where it gets both interesting and volatile. And, you know, if a person um, 
isn't maintaining the boundary in the container for the relationship that's proper for it to go right, it will go off track. And that's what we see. And unfortunately, most people in this country hear about or come across gurus in relation to a scandal. Wild, mm -hmm. wild country, you know, all these sorts of things. It's always sexy time, scandals and money and just craziness and, you know, all this kind of stuff. That's where people hear the word guru. Or we use it casually in conversation to mean a sort of subject matter expert. None of those two extremes really capture what the relationship is supposed to be like and how it really plays itself out. So um, I love that. And also on the guru. subtlety of like being able to connect to that in another person, right? It yes. doesn't mean that it's like you bypass things that happen that are not okay that are abusive and this and that but it's also like it's like me going to church and there being like a charlatan preacher but i'm like there to like you know give myself over to jesus like i'm not there to like you know like let the charlatan teach the like, preacher this happened to me like a year ago <laughs> like say like this is what god is i'm like i have god like mary magdalene's in my body and i'm gonna like take my shoes off and go up to the altar and like and like surrender like the things that are that I've done that are like harmful and like putting it, you know, I'm going to like actually do the inner practice of this, like what this whole thing from my perception is supposed to be about. And I'm going to like, I'm not going to let someone else like stop me from getting what I'm here to get, you know? And it's like, I think that there's like a, there's something of, of that kind of level of like fierceness that I think is, is really useful, you know, and this, I'm not saying like, obviously when there's abusive things, this charlatan preacher just was like trying to take all these like older people in, in Ojai's money and actually Harsh should have wound up like sending him a note and being like, that's not okay. We actually did address his charlatanness, but you know, I also was like, I was about to leave. And then I was like, wait a second, like, I don't care. Like I'm here for, you know, I came here with a reason I'm going to like bring God to the altar. I, the goddess is in me. And like, I'm going to, I'm going to surrender to that and see what happens. Like, I don't care about this. You know, so it's like the subtlety, I think of these practices and why I'm sharing this is that there is a subtlety to these practices. I think that can take us to that place where we can not just then ignore the outer form, but it's like to be able to kind of hold both, you know, and then you could hold that person accountable and also not lose the essence of what you've gained that is yours you know that isn't like something someone else can can take you know but also we we find these things in relation like in with these relationships right so yeah. um yeah i love that and i love I, everything you just shared about the guru and i think it's it's so potent to hear your experience and why i wanted to do this because i think hearing these these things and what it could be right i think is is so important because we don't have a lot of that yeah you know it's um and it's unfortunate because in its real form it is such an important relationship. And I'm not going to say that it's not fraught with difficulty. You know, me and my guru would argue ferociously sometimes about things. Um, not so much personal stuff like I don't like you or I don't, I don't like the mantra you gave me, not stuff like that, but we would just argue about philosophy and, and, and just the role of Tantra and the importance of these things and historical placement and just all kinds of stuff. But we would argue because I'm not really the type of person to just say, oh, yes, 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 you know. And I think that he kind of appreciated the fact that, you know, if I thought he was wrong, I would tell him, you know, a lot of people wouldn't do that. <laughs> um, and I would argue pretty ferociously uh, about certain points if I thought that something was important. And, you know, which if you don't mind, I'll, I'll take this as the segue into, yeah. you know, what I think a lot of people are worried about. So one of the areas, and pardon me as I sort of reach around here to plug my laptop in, red lights are flashing, that's not good. Um, 
is around the ideas of sex and sexuality and the role that it plays in traditional Tantra versus a lot of the sort of Neo-Tantra that's out there. And I see some questions here. Hi, Yuri, uh, we're getting a question about time in relation to Tantra. I don't know if we'll get to that. Time is a big subject in Tantra and it's one of the favorite sort of subject matters of Tantra traditionally. And it's a huge thing. And I don't know that we can get into that, Yuri, but maybe in class on Sunday, if you want to ask that one. And sorry, just one thing too. Um, there was someone else, Lauren, I believe, had a question that was there. And I just want to acknowledge that I did see that, Lauren, and I will try and get to that in a second. I uh, just want you to know that I'm not ignoring you. I am seeing these questions kind of streaming up, but I don't know um, if we'll have time to get to all of them. Maybe some of these I can answer for folks privately. But so anyway, so sexy time in Tantra. So you know, one of the things that we would argue pretty ferociously about was the role of the sexual teachings within the context of Tantra and where they are sort of situated in their importance and what their real sort of import is. So, and how they should be talked about publicly even. So he coached and trained me elaborately around this topic. And I did learn this particular subject and I did learn these particular teachings and I have learned these particular practices. First of all, it's not one practice, it's a whole group of teachings that center sexuality in different sorts of ways and for different, in different degrees and in different reasons and, and different levels of complexity and all of this kind of stuff. So that is a part of classical Tantra. Yes, that's there. A lot of people try and keep that secret or, or don't want to talk about it publicly who are authentically connected to the tradition because it's controversial and it's complicated. So and it, it doesn't play itself out the way that people think that it does. Number one, first and foremost, with all of the sex and sexuality as far as Tantra goes, there's as much sex in Tantra as there is in your regular life, first of all. So if you are swinging from the chandeliers and having a fabulous time and you're polyamorous and you are just getting it in good from every angle, uh, you, you don't really need Tantra for that. You've already kind of figured how to, out how to do that for yourself. So that's, first of all, not what it is. And if you're doing that, hey, enjoy, <laughs> carry on. Nothing wrong with that. It's just not what the traditional sort of teaching is. Um, if you don't have any sex in your life, okay, that's great too. You don't have to do the sexual practices in Tantra. They're, that's first and foremost. They're not essential. They're not necessary. Um, they are there though. And they are very, very powerful if you engage with them in the sort of right way. So first of all, it just occupies the same amount of space that sex is already occupying in your life. You know, it doesn't necessarily add more or less to that, but it does reframe it. And it does do something different with the pleasurable sensations. And in order to understand how and what to do with that, a whole ton of context has to be built and has to be created inside of you so that when you're experiencing that, you know where to and how to direct that. I.e., it's just an extension of meditation techniques that you've already been doing. <laughs> so it's not as, at least in my experience, it's not really as titillating or as exciting or as awesome as people might sort of think. In yeah. fact, if you have a really good sex life, it might kind of dampen that a little bit because it's not really like a, a free-for-all kind of thing. I mean, it you, it, it takes a, dis it's a practice. It is a meditative practice that has sex as, as the center component. It's actually hard to do. It's actually kind of distracting because the great stuff that we really, really like about sex, you don't just rush headlong into that. You have to change your relationship to that, which means that you have to apply some discipline. It means that all of the tools that you've used in meditation in an ordinary context are back online in a very specific context where you're not used to having to apply any sort of discipline or detachment in lots and lots of ways. Mm -hmm. So that being said, you know, it, it, 
it's just not kind of what people think that it is. On the other hand, a viewpoint that I've come around to that I didn't share at first and where I kind of started to diverge from my teacher and where, where we kind of started to argue about this kind of stuff. That being said, I don't think that neo, quote unquote, neo-tantric practices are valueless. I do not think that those, that those teachings are wrong. And there's a lot of people who practice traditional tantra who get in a, a big uproar around a lot of that kind of stuff. Oh my God, that's not the teaching. And it's being denigrated or it's being reduced down to this one sort of aspect of tradition, which is very, very true. And I used yeah. to be in this camp of person. But I've kind of come around to down to like a yoni egg and like a, and like a yeah. dildo. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. You know, it's like I've kind That's of come I do. around like to, get a dildo. Right, yeah, exactly. And some other things, you know. Um, I don't think that those kinds of things are without value, though. I, I do. And I understand the I, I have a better understanding of the impulse that underlies that. And I think and if there's some neo-tantra folks here too, feel free to like sound off on this. But my gut is that the instinct is this is a really powerful experience that's so at the center of my humanity. If it can't be used for spirituality, why not? And I think that's the impulse. Or, you know, as we were talking about in our private conversation, I think some people have spiritual experiences as a result of sexuality without knowing about tantra, without looking for that, without even aiming for that. It's a byproduct of just really intense sexual experiences. I know that that happened to me before I knew of anything about tantra. That was just my sort of intuitive experiences with stuff. Uh, and then to find out like, oh, wow, this actually is, is a thing was kind of interesting and setting. But um, I think that that impulse is correct in some ways or i think that that impulse or that question that i think has launched a lot of the neo-tantra stuff is a healthy impulse mm -hmm. you know I, I want to use and understand the the thing that is most pleasurable and core to my humanity and i want to bring that into my spiritual path why not i understand that impulse and i think that that is correct right i, I think that that line of questioning or that experience or that way of looking at things is correct and tantra does answer that question by the way it does it's just that the way that those kinds of practices are, are situated traditionally and the reasons why are kind of complex some of them are obvious you know it's basically an extension of a meditation technique so if you don't have a basic meditation technique and you don't have a basic meditation practice you're not going to be able to plug into what these yeah. these, these teachings do because it really is just you were doing this before, now you had sex. It really kind of is almost formulaic in some ways, you know? Carry on and I'll plunk this layer on, which just makes your practice harder because you've added a really distracting element actually to your normal meditation practice. So you have to have pretty good um, meditative muscles. And when I'm saying this, I'm speaking of the classical practices, not necessarily neo-tantra practices, which I haven't explored elaborately and it might be different, but the classical practices are an extension of what you're already doing. So you have to have that base practice in place before you add the sort of intense layer to it. Because basically when you add that intense layer to it, the amount of fuel going through your practice quadruples, mm -hmm. you know, um, depending on how into it, it might go up 10 times or something. So you need to make sure that the, the hard wiring is there, you mm -hmm. know, that your, your nervous system can take yeah. that new influx of energy uh, and, and do something positive with it. Mm -hmm. And that you can, you may, you know, maintain a sort of meditative awareness with a really just, a very powerful distraction, quite honestly. You know, I mean, think of how distracted you get in regular meditation when a, a car horn goes off outside or, or someone in the other room, you know, turns on the microwave. Well, sex and sexuality is a much more potent form of distraction than all of that. And you're adding that to a meditative practice. So, yeah, you know. Totally. And I think, you know, a lot of it, 
Um, I mean, I, I'm so grateful that you're you're speaking to it like that because it's like, um, yeah, because I think it is. I think it's actually much harder. Like to, I think it's not like, yeah. Um, but I but I also know from you know the teaching and from what I shared is I think part of at least in like neo tantra where it's just a lot of I think what where people get really stuck is around shame and around um, mm -hmm. all the ideas of what we've been taught about spirituality and all the things that I think um, we've inherited around like how much and who and what parts of us are allowed and what parts aren't. And there's so many kind of blockages that I think around that, that can get really freed up just by mm -hmm. exploring your own sexuality, like on your, by yourself or, you know, in the context of a safe space um, that I think could not necessarily, I, you know, I don't think it's like the only part of it, you know what I mean? Like your heart is a part, you know, I mean, it's like, like, and also infinite, right? Like you said before, yeah. it's the God, I mean, this is the goddess is infinite. We're talking about an infinite thing. So, but I think as a way of like, as opposed to, you know, this whole rejection of, I mean, the entire body, you know, like yeah. the emotions and, you know, the relational pieces, and then also just our own sexuality that really, I think can get our shame, right. That we have, yeah. I think kind of inherent just as a byproduct of you know where we're at in our evolution can can also I think be nurtured and, and be released in, in a lot of ways by um, doing practices that aren't necessarily you know these traditional tantric yeah. practices around sexuality but that are just like learning how to love your own body you know and then on top of it if you have these this meditation practice it's like you know like again it's just like expanding you know your 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 capacity to not have to have everything be like a certain way but keep opening ourselves to to all of it and to what's gonna what's gonna serve and in certain moments i think for certain people that can be a doorway you know what i mean and and yeah. just the way our sexual sex organs are really connected to our 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 voice and our throat chakra and like all these these connections in our bodies you know that are that are really i think um to me and in my experience, they're just inviting me more into what we're talking about, as opposed to like learning these things and feeling like, well, I'm not a part, I could do this practice, but am I a part of this? You know, like I can learn this teaching, but how, am I a part of it? Like how, you know, how can I be a part of this? Like fully, you know, not just with my mind or not just with this one part, but like with every every ounce of my being, you know, and that's kind of something that I just personally like want, you know, um, and will hopefully continue to learn about. So thank yeah. you for sharing all that from that traditional sense, because I think it's, it's, um, it's grounding to hear you talk about it like that. So I'm really grateful. Yeah. And I think that, you know, kind of to what you're saying there, there is such a taboo on authentic sexuality in our culture. We have all sorts of um, replicas and makeshifts of sexuality that's used in advertising and in all sorts of ways, but I don't really count that as authentic sexuality. I mean, how many people really plug in through that kind of stuff? Really? I mean, I don't know. And then there's no space to talk about the role that real sexuality plays in life. And that is one thing that is good about the sort of tantric mentality or the tantric viewpoint. You know, the tantric sort of viewpoint is we live in really spiritually degenerate and corrupt times. So everything is now fair game to explore as spiritual practice. You know, mm. all bets are off. Everything's fair game. And let's just put it out on the table and see. That's how the tantric tradition sort of evolved, really. You know, people did that or sought to answer that question over long periods of time and recorded their responses to it. You know, that's one way of looking at how 
the tantric tradition sort of evolved. Um, so yeah, just wanted to put that out there because we did talk about that. And I know that that's something that a lot of people kind of think about um, or associate with Tantra is that one sort of piece of it. And, you know, um, not going to be coy about that. I used to be a lot more coy with people kind of approaching and maybe that's there and maybe that's not. No, it is. It's there. That is a part of traditional teachings. I don't think it's that important, quite honest. You know, I know that some people center that teaching um, and, and not denigrating, not saying that it's not important. It's just all of the more controversial aspects of Tantra and the practices associated with them aren't core. You don't need to use intoxicants in your spiritual practice. Yeah, there are some forms of Tantra that allow for that and make room for that. Uh, whether it be alcohol or marijuana, there are traditional practices around those kinds of things. You don't need to do any of that though. You can mm -hmm. never touch those practices and have profound profound things happen to you, mm -hmm. profound transformative and important things happen to you, whether you touch any of those practices or not. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that that's another trap of Tantra because it's such a huge tradition and it encompasses so many different kinds of things. There's all these little rabbit holes that you can go down, um, all this sort of boutique esoteric learning that you can get caught up in. And I say this because I'm a person who falls squarely into that. Like yeah. I've gone down these rabbit holes, chasing every obscure practice. And in fact, I kind of made it a practice to ask my guru about the most obscure aspects of the yeah. tradition and demand yeah. that he teach them to me. And he would you usually like acquiesce eventually and be like, oh, Jesus Christ, like, fine, I'll teach you that. I, you don't <laughs> need to know this. This isn't good for your spiritual development, but because you've been asking me for, you know, since yeah. the beginning of time, I'm going to teach you this largely to shut you up and to show you that it's really not important. So fine. Here's how you do that. Ba -ba 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 -ba. Now do a 40 day sadhana with it. And you'll see that it's not more powerful than anything that you've already ever learned, you know? Yeah. So I have gone down that rabbit hole of let's chase the minutia. Let's chase the obscure. Let's chase um, the phantasmagoric and, uh, and unheard of. And the more obscure and unheard of it is, the more I want it. That is a trap. Mm. Anything that takes you away from the core of what tantric teaching is, is a trap. Here's the core of the tantric teaching. Spoiler alert, it's as this simple. You are God, full stop. That is the essence of the teaching. The first yeah. time I went to my guru, when I met him and I decided, okay, I think I wanna study with this guy, da, 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 da. What he said to me stunned me. He looked at me and kind of said, you know, what do you want? What do you want? You know, you, you're a nice person, you have a nice job, you have a nice house, you have a nice family. You've got nice friends, you have this nice life. What do you mm. want? You already have everything. What do you want from me? Mm. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that. Mm. And I had to really stop and think, huh, yeah. okay, that's a really good question. What, what do I want out of this? Like, what do I think that this is? Like, what do I have in my life? And what, what is this adding to it? Or where is this all going? So, you know, I kind of thought about that. And he basically said to me the next time I went to him, you know, I was like, I, I really want to study with you. I really want to learn to you. I really want to learn tantra. And he's like, okay, that's great. Okay. So I asked you a question, you know, what do you want? Mm. You haven't answered that question yet. Mm. What do you want? You know, oh, I want this and I want that. Da, da, da. He sent me away the second time. You already have it. Mm. That's it. You already have it. You are God. You already have it. What do you want? Mm. Why are you coming to me? You already have it inside of you. You are God. And then I kind of went away. Okay, let me think about that. And I didn't have the sort of like Shakti pot awakening, you know, I was just kind of like, huh, that sounds good. Well, I, I don't feel that though. Okay, so then I yeah. go back. Okay, you said last time I'm good. Yes, all right. But I don't feel that though. 
Yeah. I mean, that might be true for you or maybe true for other people. That might be true at the end of the path, but I'm at the beginning. So I don't, I'm not experiencing that as my first person reality. How do we bridge that gap? Yeah. Ah, you need Upasana. Yeah. Okay. You and know, that's and wanting, right? That's the then connection to the, that's the power of like the want, you know, what you're saying, I think. And so mm-hmm. that's like one of the key thing pieces, I think, in our practice or in our spirituality is knowing, because then all of a sudden that gets turned on in you. And then there's like a, you know, then there's, there's somewhere to go, right? There's yes. like, yeah, so powerful. And the desire fuels the whole thing the whole time. So mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a whole other like des- t- desire and tantra. That's also like we could talk about that for like. Oh, I love talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> that is a huge topic. This again, because it's like, yeah, I love talking about that so much. I think it's it, and like from just working with people, I think it's it's a huge piece of it that gets mm-hmm. that that really again is like a learning. It's a learning that that is. A part of it because I think again we're so conditioned that that is just off the table and out of yes. the church and out of the room and and then everything becomes like you're saying it's like all these outer things and I think so many of the the great mystics from India that I really connected to it's like you can feel that you can feel that in their song or their poem or their whatever it is that they're they're offering you can feel that desire you know for connection or that that longing for for what is like for what is right inside but that isn't always isn't always like what we're experiencing you know and so the permission then for all of the things that we experience I think is so beautiful and so potent and so powerful and and the the seeking you know of what's already like right here you know and that's a part of you know the play of the divine mother quite honestly is that feeling of closeness and union with her and then that separation and chasing and wanting her back. It will consume you (laughs) in the best sort of way. It will inflame this sort of desire in you and everything else that you want is just not enough is how it feels. It's, it, she becomes the only thing that you can think about. And every other desire is just a means to her is what it starts to feel like. You know, so Tantra does not get rid of desire. It inflames and enhances it and redirects it in this really, really incredible way because it basically makes you want something that you can never have really when you start to yeah. look at it. As long yeah. as it's outside it, of you. So, yeah. that, that desire and also the love, right? It's like, it's like I, I I've I've gotten so much value out of just giving permission to the part of me and continue. It's like a constant thing of like it's okay that it's never it's never enough. Like it's like there's not. It's like that has been like like the source of my suffering, right? It's like that could be the source of my suffering, right? I don't mean it like whatever it is on the outside, but just it, like the feeling inside that it's not enough. Like more, I need more love. I need more love. I need more love. It's like that, you know, in this relationship, it's like, that is, that is the ultimate, you know? And and in another side, it has been the source and, you know, is in certain moments for me now, like the source of my suffering, you know? So to to take that and to make it something useful and to make it something that is a part of like being alive and and continuing to become more alive is, is such a gift. Yeah, well, the goddess herself, you know, one of the main forms that we worship her in is as Kameshwari. You know, her name having comma in it, she of comma, 
Parameshwari. So, you know, that sort of longing and desire sort of built into who and what she is. Ultimately, you know, in the tantric sort of perspective, the whole cosmos is here because of that desire. That is the core of everything, really, that drives everything forward and keeps the earth turning on its axis and species producing and everything going and going and going is desire just seeking to fulfill itself through life more and more and more life. And that shows up inside of you first is just your regular sort of desires. And then as you sort of chant these mantras and meditate on some things, you're led back to the source of your desire. And you start to see that it's not necessarily in the things outside of you. It's in something else inside of you that won't be satisfied by anything else. And when that happens, then the goddess has her hook so deeply in you, <laughs> you'll, you'll never yeah. get away at that point because you yeah. really don't want anything else. Mm -hmm. um, I love that. Yeah. I feel amazing. like that's a good place to, to pause. I won't yes. say because <laughs> we will be back and, you know, Malcolm does the class every Sunday. So, you know, I know we didn't get to all of your questions, but feel free to message either of us about that. Yeah, um, Malcolm will um, be doing his class on Sunday and, and also does private sessions and, um, yeah, I would love to have another conversation with you sometime. I would love I like that. It's such a joy. For sure. I'd love that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we have another, I'm doing one more of these classes on yoga. <laughs> I'm like, yoga, let's just talk about yoga and why we're doing it. <laughs> um, but next week, next Thursday, I have another free class with an um, <clears throat> amazing woman in Sadika named uh, Nikki Slade, who is an amazing um Kirtan um, singer, but also just such a deep um, practitioner and, and, and an amazing being from the UK. So we'll be here next week. Um, and then I have one other free um, class on trust and intimacy um, in um, August. That's like a longer kind of three hour chunk thing. So getting more into some of the like relational work um, with my friend, Olivia. So Malcolm, awesome. thank you so much. And everybody give Malcolm lots of love and yeah, just so grateful for you doing this. For sure. I would love it. And anytime. Yay. Okay, everyone. Thanks everybody for, for tuning in. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. Sending y'all lots and lots of love. <laughs>